Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Brandon. Welcome to North Main Street Church of God. Merry Christmas. Soon to be Happy New Year. Hey, uh, two weeks ago, we started a sermon series on faith. How faith never loses, or how love never loses faith. I started that sermon out with an illustration that I had to correct last week. And the sermon illustration was about an African impala. I said it was a cat. I corrected that last week and reminded you it was a car. And I said something about antlers. I was corrected again this past Sunday. An impala has a horn. Uh, Or horns. They have horns. Not Seriously, I was corrected. Impalas don't have antlers. They have horns. All right. Well, welcome anyway. We're so glad you're here. We continue our series on Hebrews chapter 11, and we look at faith and the, and the, the various different aspects of faith and how love never loses faith. And what is faith? Well, we'll talk about that today. But the kind of faith that we're talking about specifically today is obedient faith. How many of you have obedient faith? You don't have to raise your hand. That's a rhetorical question. Obedient faith. Obedient faith is the kind of faith that comes when we act on our faith. We looked at James chapter 2 a couple weeks ago as well, and last week briefly we touched on it, that faith without works is dead. We aren't saved by our works. We are saved by the work of Christ on the cross when we believe in him. But belief is an act of faith. It is a stepping into. It's not that we save ourselves, it's that Jesus saves us, but he, only, he goes so far without forcing your hand, right? He's gone every step of the way to bring us salvation. He's pulled out all the stops and he says, okay, now this is on you. Do you believe? And the act of obedient faith is taking that one step to Christ. He's walked a million steps in our direction, but he can't take that one step for us. We have to take it. That's the kind of obedient faith we're going to be talking about this morning. And we're only going to be using one verse, which is really odd for me. I usually read chapters upon chapters in the morning service like this, but we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 this morning. You know, when a skyscraper is built, before we get to the passage of Scripture, when a skyscraper is built, they, they dig down very deep to get to bedrock, okay? Depending on the size of the building, they're building skyscrapers, usually are multi-level buildings, multi-stories. They have to dig very, very deep into the ground to get a foundation built in order to support the structure above it. Because if you only build on the surface, you get what you have in Pisa, Italy, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. 
They built on unstable ground. The foundation was not deep enough. And what happens over time is the structure begins to lean and inevitably gets to a critical point where it just topples over. With this in mind, the believer's obedience to God is the best foundation to lay when we build our lives. So let's look at verse 7 this morning very quickly. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat, or we might call it an ark, to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. Had this ever happened before? Says it hadn't. He warned Noah about things that had never happened before. Flooding the earth had never happened up to this point. But by his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, in that one verse, there's a lot to unpack this morning. There's condemnation, there's righteousness, there's obedience. So let's break those down this morning. Peter Forsyth was right when he said, the first duty of every soul is to find not freedom, but its master. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Because depending on who you serve or what you serve, you may either be enslaved or you may be in freedom. Noah was a man of obedient faith. His obedient faith led him to a master that saw his obedient faith as righteousness, and it was counted unto Noah as righteousness. Even when he looked to the rest of the world like a nutcase, Noah's faith in God elevated him to the status of someone who God was pleased with. So the key point this morning is this, righteousness is a result of obedient faith and trust in God. Noah's faith led him to obedience, to God's word. Some versions of scripture note that Noah was moved by reverent fear. When we talk about obedience, you can't talk about obedience without talking about reverent fear. Reverent fear of God is not this, oh no, kind of response. It's more of the awe response. To lay prostrate before the Lord, face down in his holy presence. The maker and creator of all heaven and earth, the one who gave us himself, who created us and knit us together in our mother's womb. The one who the psalmist says, in him we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We stand in reverence and in awe of our creator. And if you don't, that's foolishness because the fool doesn't fear God because they don't believe in God. They go about their business doing what they want to, when they want to, where they want to, and with whom they want to. Casting any kind of issue that they're struggling with, uh, not casting that, but, but focusing on those issues rather than focusing on the God that can help them get through the issues. I meet with people all the time that come to me with issues. And one of the first things I ask is, are you praying? And are you seeking God through his word? No, is more often than not the answer I get. But if you're not praying and seeking God through his word, how do you think he's going to reveal himself to you in a way to show you the truth of your situation and help you get out of there? 
See, he's given us everything we need to make it through this life. But we fight against each other, we fight against him, and we fight against inanimate objects at times. Have you ever, have you ever gotten mad at your remote control, your computer, your phone? Yeah? Have you ever gotten mad at your car for not starting up and slammed the steering wheel as if you think you're hurting it? I tell you, I have anger issues when it comes to fixing things around my house. I'm not much of a handyman. I try to be. I can fix certain things at certain times. But when that stubborn bolt on the vehicle has rusted so completely and you've juiced it up with WD-40 over and over and over and it still won't come loose and you're grunting and getting hemorrhoids because you're straining so hard (laughs) and you start to scream at it. And then you're like, forget the rubber mallet. Where's my hammer? Right? Or a fire torch. I don't have one of those, but I'll call on you next time I need one. He was moved with reverent fear of God. A reverent fear that made him stand in awe and wonder of his holy creator, who led him to the point to say, I've never seen it flood before. What is, what is that? If it's never flooded, but somebody tells you it's going to flood, do you have any concept of what that means? Now, guess what had not happened up to this point? At least we don't have record of it in scripture. It had never rained. Now, if it had rained, we don't have the documentation, but if we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, specifically chapter 2, we read that the earth was watered by a heavy mist, or some versions say by springs that came up from below the earth. Seems as if the earth had never known up to that point any kind of uh, water vapor that would come down in these droplets we call rain. So for Noah to hear God say, listen, I need you to build me a big boat on land. Build it on land because it's going to flood the earth. And oh, by the way, I'm going to save all all the animals, at least the ones that are existing today that I'm going to send to you two by two. He didn't go around the earth gathering up animals. God sent the animals to the ark. See, Noah didn't even have to do that. He had to be obedient to build a boat. If you've never seen it flood, and if you look at the dimensions of the ark, how many of you have been to the ark experience in Kentucky? Some of you have. That is supposed to be to the exact dimensions of the Bible, as close as we can get it based on what a cubit is. A cubit is basically the length between the elbow and the tip of the finger on a uh, adult male. And for the most part, it's within a typical range. It is a massive boat. The scripture says it's built out of gopher wood, whatever that is. But it's some kind of wood and it's supposed to be uh, layered on the inside and the out with tar and pitch to keep it waterproof. You ever wonder what was going through Noah's mind? First off, he's chosen by God. He hears God speak to him and he says, listen, I want you to build me a boat because I'm going to flood the earth. 
Here's how big the boat is. And if he had played football or knew anything about football, he'd know it's, you know, bigger than a football field, right? Um, do you think Noah said anything but, okay, God, I'll do what you say? Because we got that in the scripture that by his obedient faith, he obeyed the Lord and he did what the Lord had told him. But have you ever obeyed not knowing why you were doing what you were doing, but that you knew you were supposed to do it because you were told to do it by somebody in authority. But in your mind, you're thinking, huh, this just doesn't seem right. Something seems amiss. And what are my neighbors going to think? I mean, I'm building a boat in the middle of nowhere on the land. They're going to think I'm nuts. Now, we don't get any indication that people walk by going, <laughs> look at that boat. <laughs> but we do know that it was a very wicked and horrible generation of people. So we can pretty much ascertain up to this point, as wicked and as evil as the people had become, that they weren't being nice to Noah as he's building this boat that's of this caliber and this size in the middle of nowhere. I mean, they had to be really looking down on him. But he continued to build. Have you ever gotten so discouraged you give up? You can raise your hand on that one. Have you ever get, gotten so discouraged in doing what you knew to be the right thing to do, but it seemed like every time you got up to do the right thing because you felt God was calling to it, you to it, that you keep getting hit and hit and hit and hit, and you're like, well, I guess God wasn't calling me to this. But he still was. I mean, we have countless stories in Scripture where people were called to something that God had said, this is explicitly what I want you to do. And they hit obstacle after obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. You ever wonder, maybe God's testing your resolve? Maybe God allows these things to pound up against you sometimes to see if you have the stick to itiveness. Does your boss ever done that to you to see if you're going to be able to withstand the job? Have they put a lot on you to see how much you could handle, to see if you are up to the task that you have said you're up to? See, obedient faith requires a stick-to-itiveness and a perseverance. You, you have to understand, building this boat for Noah was not an overnight process. This had to take him months to the size of the boat he was building. And the only thing we maybe have an understanding of is that his three sons may have helped him on this. But how in the world else was he going to get anybody else to help him with this? Sometimes you feel alone, don't you? Not only do you feel battered and discouraged, but you feel alone. But God, I'm being obedient. I'm doing what I believe you've told me to do. Why is it so hard? I never promised you it would be easy. 
that never promised you you wouldn't be persecuted, looked down on, that you wouldn't get frustrated from time to time. I promised you I'd be with you. When you go through some of the deepest, darkest valleys that look like the shadow of death, I'm right there with you. But do you trust me? Do you believe in me? Are you willing to look like a fool to the rest of the world as you walk with me? See, Noah was. And I have to believe Noah had doubts from time to time. But even in the midst of his doubts, he continued to press in and press on, to trust, to believe in God. What would it take for us, because I have this question written here, what would it take for us to take God at his word like Noah did? Well, here's one thing. It would take us knowing God's word, first off. We live in one of the most biblically illiterate generations and cultures the world has ever known. And we live in one of the most free cultures. We have multiple versions of English scripture on our bookshelves. So what would it take for us to believe in the word of God the way Noah believed in God's word? It would take us actually reading it and, and studying it first. Secondly, it would take us believing that what was written was true. It is true now. You see, remember, faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for will happen, and it's the evidence of things that we can't see. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Noah's trust of God went beyond his ability to see with physical eyes what was about to happen because nothing like this had ever happened before. Abraham believed God would give him and Sarah a baby in their old age, even when they were beyond childbearing years. They had obedient faith. Did they mess up? Of course they did. Abraham lied about his wife Sarah being his sister twice in front of two powerful people because he was afraid that they would kill him and take his wife. Did he trust God? To a point, but not all the way. Sarah didn't trust God either all the way because she said, well, it doesn't look like God's going to give us a son through me, so why don't you take my servant Hagar and have a baby with her? Maybe that's what God wanted. But even in the midst of all of that, God, who is long-suffering and patient with those that he gives his promises to, says, okay, you messed up. Are you still willing to follow me? Or are you going to stay in the messed up state that you're in? Because, see, obedient faith is a faith that keeps pressing on even when you mess up along the way. It doesn't mean that we have license to mess up whenever we want to, but it means that when we do mess up, we have an advocate to the Father, Jesus Christ, who is there interceding for us, saying, this is our son and daughter. They've messed up, but I believe they're going to get up and do the right thing. I believe they're going to come and, and get the forgiveness they need. I believe they're going to repent the way they should. See, Moses obediently put his staff in the waters of the Red Sea, believing that God would part the waters. But guess what Moses had to do in order for the waters to part? He could stand there and say, part! But that's not what God said to do. God said, as soon as you put your staff in the water, watch what I can do. So Moses had to do something. 
See, he believed God could do it because he's seen God do miraculous things up to that point. Look at the 10 plagues in, Israel, or in, in Egypt. He'd seen God do miraculous things. And so now the Israelites are there. Pharaoh's army is pressing in and their backs are against the Red Sea. What are they going to do? God says, put your staff in the water. Huh? Do, I'm sorry, put it where? What do you want me to do? Stir it? Uh, what is going to go on? I mean, now, but think about this. What is he going to do? He has to do something. What if he never put his staff in the water? See, we don't have the rendition of that story. But see, Moses believed and was obedient. Was he always obedient to God? No, because there was one time after they crossed the Red Sea and in their wilderness wanderings that Moses got so ticked off at the people, as some spiritual leaders do from time to time, <laughs> because I know you never get ticked off with your spiritual leader. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I never get ticked off with you. You guys are amazing. And I know you never get ticked off with me either. But Moses is standing there, and the people are complaining, we're thirsty, oh, we had so much water back in Egypt. Did you bring us out here to let us die of thirst? And God had told Moses, speak to the rock, it'll bring forth water. And Moses is like, mm-mm. And he takes that same staff that he put in the Red Sea to part the waters, and he goes like this with a, a wind-up bat motion, he goes, whack! Now the rock still gave forth water because God's merciful even in our stupidity. But you see, Moses got punished. The promised land that Moses was leading the people to, that they refused to take and had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, would be a place that Moses would never be able to lead them to because of his disobedience to God. See, his disobedience had a result. And the result was, I'll let you climb up to Mount Pisgah and look over the promised land, but you're not gonna be able to enter the promised land. And I can imagine he's standing up there on top of Mount Pisgah, maybe even sitting down on a rock. He's 120 years old at the time, the Bible tells us. And I bet he's weeping because this is what God had called him to. And if it hadn't been for his disobedience, he would get to experience a promised land and not just see it from the distance. What about David? David had obedient faith, but he messed up. And the consequences of his sin left him Still messed up, but also a man after God's own heart. David obediently met Goliath on the field of battle, believing that with God's power and protection, he could take down the giant. He didn't have battle armor on. He had five smooth stones and a sling. And he took one of the very first ones, sunk deep into the forehead of the giant, and he fell down. And just for safekeeping, he takes Goliath's sword and slashes his head off. Now, I'm teaching this to seventh graders. They love it. Well, the girls don't. The boys love <laughs> to hear about the battle scenes in the Old Testament. 
What about Mary? We come into this Christmas season. Think about Mary. Mary obediently carried the Son of God in her womb for nine months, believing God's message that she would give birth to a son who would reign on the throne of David as the coming Messiah had been promised to, even though she was a virgin, was betrothed to Joseph. What kind of obedient faith for a young, probably mid-teenage girl to say, okay, I'll do it. Knowing the cultural taboos of the day, knowing everything in society that could probably get her in trouble, she'd probably lose Joseph, but she was willing to obediently follow God, knowing that God had control, and regardless of what happened, that she would be victorious regardless. Have you been obedient to God's word even when it didn't make sense? It's a question. Noah's faith also condemned the rest of the world. I was thinking about this this week, and how did his, when I was preparing for this message, how did Noah's faith, it's not like he was going around saying, ah, you're a horrible person. He didn't run around town building the ark, hammering nails, or when scoffers would come by, of course, we don't have, again, we don't have written descriptions of scoffers coming by, but if they did, we don't hear anything about him saying, yeah, well, you're going to hell anyway. Did we? You don't get any of that. We hear that he put himself to the task of being obedient to build a boat that God had called him to build even when it didn't make sense because he believed in God more than he believed what was going on in the culture around him. And even when he was scoffed at or ridiculed or persecuted, he didn't turn as a lot of us would want to and yell back some obscene thing. We as believers in Christ who are obedient to Christ to continue to follow and walk in his ways shouldn't be pointing fingers at other people. Jesus even told us in his Sermon on the Mount, before you talk to somebody else about the speck in their eye, get the log out of your eye first. Didn't he? So how did Noah condemn other people? Well, Noah's faith in God contrasted with the wickedness of mankind. Think about how bad it was. In Genesis chapter 6, if you read that, it says, the world had gotten so wicked that even the thoughts of man were evil all the time. All the time. Not just a little bit, but all the time. So Noah's faith in God, contrasted with the wickedness of mankind, was in and of itself a form of condemnation because Noah's faith in God exposed more fully the wickedness of the world. Do you hear what I'm saying? A person who lives in a righteous life on a daily basis will ultimately contrast with the fallen world around them. People call us holy rollers sometimes, or goody two-shoes right? Holier than thou. Some rightly so because we make a mockery of God by going around and saying, well, you, go, you turn or burn and we do that kind of stuff. But what if we don't say a word? What if we truly live out our life in Christ, our obedient faith to God? Guess what? You're still going to be ridiculed and persecuted. Jesus says, remember when they persecute you, they persecuted me first. You will be hated for following me. 
Why will you be hated? Because when you're doing the right thing, when other people are doing the wrong thing, they feel guilty and oftentimes will point a finger back accusing you of being a goody two-shoes. Think about this, a person who believes it's wrong to commit adultery and who lives a faithful relationship with their spouse for their whole life inadvertently by their own actions condemn those who don't live faithfully in their own marriages. It's not that they're trying to go around and shame people, it's just the nature of good versus evil. A person who believes it's wrong to get drunk or high will be mocked as a holy roller or a goody two-shoes at a frat party while bringing conviction upon their mockers just by their restraint. The one who believes in the sanctity of marriage as between a man and a woman is mocked and ridiculed as being a homophobe. It's true. Even without the person saying a word of condemnation to anybody else, just because of your belief, you will be condemned. The one who believes in the sanctity of life and that all unborn children deserve a chance at life are derided as hate mongers who only want to take away a woman's choice over her own body. What do we do with this? See, the world looks at Christians as people who hate other people. But true Christians love everybody the way God first loved them. And they live in accordance with God's will and purposes in their lives. The Christian loves the gay person, the person that's confused about their gender, the person who's caught in the act of adultery, just as much as they love their brother, their sister, their mom, their dad. And I know that sounds weird, but we are to love everybody with the same kind of agape love. It doesn't mean we agree with the decisions of those that make those decisions to do those things we believe are against God's commands. And it doesn't mean we condemn them for it because we aren't in a place to condemn. We aren't the judge. But there is a holy judge who will judge. And he'll judge me too with the equal amount of judgment that he judges anybody else. The only thing that gives us saving grace is the mark of Jesus Christ on our lives, that our obedient faith to follow him each and every day of our lives, to surrender our lives to him, to follow him, to do what he says to do, to live how he says to live, to love how he says to love, will be the marker on our lives when we stand before God someday and hear him say either, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me for I never knew you. That's the difference. You see, Christians aren't to verbally go around condemning everybody. All we are called to do is to live our lives for Jesus. And to let our lives lived in Jesus reflect Jesus to the rest of the world. But when we reflect Jesus to the rest of the world, sometimes that conflicts with other people's beliefs and way of life. And in essence, there's a condemnation that comes without even speaking words. But that's the nature of being faithful to God. Finally, and I'll close with this, <clears throat> Noah received righteousness that only comes by faith in God. The King James Version <clears throat> has a translation as this, Noah became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. What is righteousness? One of the simplest ways to look at righteousness is this, righteousness is right living. 
And you have to say, well, who determines right living? I don't. You don't determine it. The government doesn't determine it. No government on the face of the earth. God has solely determined what is right and wrong. He is the moral arbiter of good. And he tells us what is good. And what is good is what is completely from his hand. Even his justice and judgment is good. And that's hard to fathom, but it is. Because we live in a world where the judgment and justice system is so upside down, we see people getting off scot-free for things that they did that they shouldn't be getting off scot-free for. Right? So what does it look like in God's economy? Well, it's a little different. It's reversed from the systems of the world. The person who on their deathbed, who has lived a despicable life, can breathe their last breath saying, oh God, I have made a horrible mistake. I repent of my sins. Please forgive me. And have the same experience as somebody who's lived their whole lives for Christ. Now, we don't like to hear that. Thank goodness we're not God because we judge a lot of people to go to hell. But God's graciousness, goodness, mercy, and grace, all of that wrapped up in his unconditional agape love is waiting even to the last to say, here, my hand is here. You want to take it? All you have to do is to believe in my son. Just reach out. I'll count it as righteousness if you believe in my son. Just come on. Just do this. That step of faith, obedient faith in my direction through my son, Jesus Christ, who gave everything for your sins. All you have to do is believe and repent. And your repentance is saying, I have done wrong. I need to make it right. And you turn away from the wrong and you head toward the right. And the right is always Christ. That's what it takes. James Stuart Bell in the One Year Men of the Bible writes this, Arabian horses are trained rigorously in the Middle Eastern deserts. Uh, The horse must learn to fully obey their master. The obedience is tested by depriving the horses of water for many days and then turning them loose near the water. As the horses get to the edge of the water and just before they start to drink that much needed water that they've been deprived of, the trainer blows his whistle. If the horses have learned to obey their master, they turn around and come straight back to the trainer who then gives them as much water as they need. See, the trainer knows what his horses need and will not allow them to die of thirst, but they must trust him first. God knows what his children need and will supply it, but we must trust and obey him regardless of what our situation looks like. As our worship team comes forward to close us out this morning, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you trust God? And here's the thing. We we, we all know the right answer is to say yes. But does your life show evidence of a life that is lived trusting God? in your master and savior, Jesus Christ. Does your life show the telltale marks like Noah of obedient faith, even when the world and the odds are stacked against you? Does it? 
You say, Brandon, I don't do it perfectly. No, and a lot of the biblical characters never did. But see, what made them different than the rest of society is when they messed up, when they doubted, when they faltered, when they failed, when they stumbled, they got back up. They corrected their course. They repented of their sin, and they continued to head in the direction of God's calling. God may not be calling you to build a boat of this astronomical size, but maybe he's calling you to build into the life of another. And you think there's no way they're ever gonna believe. If I invest my time in it, they're gonna think I'm weird. They don't even know that I'm a Christian. And if I talk to them about the things of God, then they're going <laughs> to they're gonna laugh at me or they're going to think I'm, I'm just off my rocker. Or maybe God's calling you to give something and that something would be a sacrifice to you. I don't know. And you're saying, but it doesn't, I don't know what, it, it doesn't make sense. Why would I? But we know the nudge of the Spirit sometimes pushes us in directions to do the right thing, but we wrestle. He's saying, are you going to obey me? Are you going to step in to that obedient faith and do what I've called you to, even, even when it doesn't make sense? See, obedient faith may call us to leave those who are bad influences on our life on our lives, or it may call us to press into those who have been in bad influences to speak the truth in love and to show them the way out of their current situations. I can't determine for you what that is. Only you can, and God can. This morning, if you feel the need to come and pray, we always add this at the end. You can come to my right, your left, if you want somebody to pray with you because you're, maybe you're struggling with something. And maybe you've heard that still small voice of God and you think, well, I don't know if it's my thought or if it's God's thought or if it's just this harebrained idea or if it was a bad burrito away the night before. Maybe you don't know where this is coming from and you just need some godly counsel and somebody to pray with you through that. You come to my right, your left. We'll work with you. We'll walk with you. If you just, if you know the right thing to do, but you're struggling against doing it, what are you holding back for? But if you need to make amends with God or talk to God about something and you just want to be left alone, come to my left, your right. These altars are open as well. With that in mind, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you challenge us because it's in the challenge, it's in the struggle that we grow. We go to places to work out and build up our muscle and to lose weight. Many of us have different kinds of um, memberships to athletic clubs, God. We know in the process of working out that the muscle has to tear and break in order to build new muscle tissue to grow. And sometimes it's painful and we end up sore a day or two later, just like our physical bodies need the workout to get healthier, so do our spiritual bodies, God. 
And sometimes you challenge us to obedient faith, and sometimes that means it's going to cost us more than we realize. And we might question and doubt that we've made the right decision, but remind us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, to press into you, even when the rest of the world may be around us shouting and yelling and God looking down on us. Help us to continue to be obedient to you regardless of what everybody else thinks. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.